we launched Prodpad out there with the idea that we didn't want to build a startup. We wanted to build a business. And this is because we'd gone through companies that had done that whole thing of raising tons of money and hiring tons of people and then actually achieving nothing with it. Uh, we didn't want to be that company. We wanted to build something that actually added value to our customers so we could get paid for it, which back in 2012, 2013 was actually kind of revolutionary. <laughs> Everyone else at that point in time was raising money. So we didn't raise funds. We just built something and put it out there and we had our first paying customer within the month. Hi, welcome to The Struggle, a production of the SaaS Revolution Show brought to you by SaaStock. I'm your host, Alex Thuma, and on this month's episode, I speak with Jana Basto, co-founder and CEO of ProdPad, a SaaS platform for product management that helps product managers develop product strategy. It took Jana about a week on the job as a product manager to realize that she didn't have the tools necessary to do her job. Creating roadmaps, managing a backlog of features, writing specs was all done in PowerPoint and Excel, tools never created for such purposes. Yet for two years, that's exactly what Jana used. Until one day, she decided she had enough of waiting for better tools and together with what would become her co-founder, Simon Cast, began building a tool she needed. Initially, Jana and Simon used it for themselves, It didn't take long until they realized that many other product managers just like them would find it useful. In 2012, they quit their jobs and in February 2013, ProdPad was officially launched. They signed their first customer in the first month, a customer that is still with them to this day. It hasn't always been breezy for ProdPad. On the contrary, in the six years since launching, ProdPad has been through the plateau of doom and has entertained the idea of VC funding back and forth, ultimately deciding to bootstrap and accepting the challenges that path comes with. The experience comes with a great deal of lessons, some regrets, some mistakes. One thing that's been there from the beginning is the fundamental agreement between her and her co-founder that they were building a business, not a startup. Every decision has stemmed from that. As all the other guests on The Struggle, I've got the utmost respect for Jana and the fact she never gave in to The Struggle, but instead always remained aware of why she was doing this. You can see Jana return to SASDOC in Dublin in October for SASDOC 19. Or if you can't wait until then, we have SASDOC East Coast coming up this June on the 4th and 5th of June. We'll have many founders there and execs uh, sharing their struggles and lessons that they picked up from the experience of growing and scaling their SaaS companies. Speakers like Raggy Thomas, CEO and co-founder of the Unicorn Sprinkler, Jonathan Cherky, CEO and co-founder of Content Square, uh, Julie Weil-Persofsky, partner at Winning by Design, amongst others. We'll have uh, a day of boot camps on the 4th of June. These will feature CEO boot camps, uh, sales boot camps, growth marketing boot camps, so in-depth lessons there to be learned from our speakers uh, who will be acting as mentors. And then on the 5th, we'll have the day of uh, content and lessons uh, in the format of keynotes, panels, and fireside chats with some of the great speakers that I mentioned, plus around 25 more. Listeners to this show, you can avail of our two-for-one ticket deal for SaaS.East Coast only. Go to events.sas.com forward slash East Coast 19 and use the code 241, and that's the word F-O-R-4. So two F-O-R-1, code two for one for your two-point discount. So now on with the show. Welcome to The Struggle. Jana Basto, co-founder and CEO of ProdPad. Welcome, Jana. Hi, thanks very much for having me. No, it's good. Uh, good to have you on the podcast. We've had you on the podcast before, but on the, 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 the SaaS Revolution show, normal version 
but we've not had you on the struggle yet. And I think that the, we, when we had you on the podcast, it, it was a few years ago. So it's good to good to catch up on the podcast and uh, and talk about some different topic uh, or subject matters. Yeah, great to be here. I guess for those that perhaps haven't listened to that episode of the podcast, which we will link to in the show notes and haven't heard of you before, just tell us a little bit about you. Who is Janet Basto? So I am the co-founder and CEO of ProdPad, which is software for product managers and their teams. Uh, I'm also co-founder of Mind the Product, which is a community and series of events for product managers. Uh, And I've just got this background in um, a mishmash of different software tech companies uh, that allowed me to grow into these roles as a product person and now as a founder CEO. So your background into sort of ProdPad, as you said, you've got a background in product management. Is that where the creation, the birth of ProdPad came from that, you know, was it fair to say that you saw a problem that perhaps you you were facing and and decided to solve by building this product? We we often hear that story that, you know, somebody has this problem and uh, they decide to build the product themselves. Is, Is this the case with you? Yeah, that's exactly right. I was a product manager uh, leading a product team in London uh, and needed tools to do my own job and just nothing existed at the time. Uh, And so started building something. I I got together with a a product friend of mine. Uh, He was able to build the back end of this tool. I was able to build the front end of the tool. And originally, it was just a tool to help us solve our uh, own problems, help us with our day jobs. Uh, But it was after a little while that we realized that this tool that we'd built was actually really compelling and we were gaining interest from the product managers around us. Uh, So started testing the market, seeing if it was something we could turn into an actual SaaS product. And how long was it until you, I guess, from the idea when you created that tool to actually having this fully formed SaaS product? Yeah, I mean, the original ideas came out of pretty much my first week on the job as a product manager when I realized that I needed to do things like create roadmaps and manage a backlog and write specs, and there were just no tools for it. Um, it took me a couple of years to get to the point that I realized that there was something that could be done about it, that you know, PowerPoint and spreadsheets weren't the way forward, and started um, mocking up some some more detailed ideas as to what this tool could be. Uh, and it wasn't until 2010 that I met my co-founder. And that was the moment that I realized that I actually could build this if I worked with somebody else who uh, had a complementary tech background. Has the product or has ProPad been around since 2010 then? So for, for nine years? <laughs> Back in 2010, uh, 2010 through 2012, it didn't even have a name. It was just this tool that we used internally. Uh, and it started off as quite literally a hack project that we did over the weekend and uh, you know snatch days that we could. Uh, it was in 2012 that we quit our jobs to go focus on it full time, uh, branded it up, turned it into something that you can see now see live. And we launched that in February 2013. When you went full time, were you paying yourselves uh, any any money? Did you, no. did you have a load of investment, <laughs> millions of pounds in the bank? Far from it. We invested our pocket money, as in quite literally a few hundred pounds each, um, just to pay for server costs and whatever small tools we needed. And we launch ProdPad out there with the idea that we didn't want to build a startup. We wanted to build a business. And this is because we'd gone through companies that had done that whole thing of raising tons of money and hiring tons of people and then actually achieving nothing with it. Uh, We didn't want to be that company. We wanted to build something that actually added value to our customers. We could get paid for it, Uh, which back in 2012, 2013 was actually kind of revolutionary. (laughs) Everyone else at that point in time was raising money. Uh, So we didn't raise funds. We just built something and put it out there. And we had our first paying customer within the month. 
Uh, it did take uh, so quite some time to get to the point that we could actually pay ourselves. But what we did in the meantime was actually um, roll out um, bits and pieces of uh, consulting and mentoring and training and other bits and pieces like that that allowed us to keep flexing our muscles as product managers, um, learn how other companies do product management and build ProdPad in relation to these different companies that we're getting exposed to, all while taking on a paycheck that uh, allowed us to um, quit our day jobs and focus on ProdPad. How, how did you get that first customer? Did they come to you? Was it a friend, uh, family? or It, it was completely organic. Um, we had been writing articles like how to do a roadmap or how to write specs that your developers will actually read, uh, bits and pieces like that. And in hindsight, you'd call that a content strategy. For us, it was just us talking about what it is that we were doing and what we were learning along the way. Uh, and so right out of the gate, we had decent SEO for people who were looking for product tools. Uh, our first uh, customer were properly early adopters. These are people who were looking for product tools when nothing really existed for them, uh, spotted ProdPad and jumped right on it. And that first customer is actually still with us today. So you, you also mentioned that uh, obviously you bucked the trend in 2012 and, and didn't raise VC money when everybody was raising VC money. Is that still the case? Have, have, you, have you raised anything to date or are you still 100% bootstrapping? 100% bootstrapped, but now growing and profitable. So we actually avoided uh, raising money along the way, even though we did have opportunities as we uh, as we went through. Each time it came up, we realized that uh, an injection of cash wasn't necessarily what was going to help the company most. Uh, sometimes it was changing our strategy. Sometimes it was being smarter with what we had. But each time that we've had a chance to think about it, we've realized that actually we don't need that kind of cash and bringing in you know 10 more developers and 20 salespeople or whatever else isn't going to solve problems uh, and as a matter of fact it runs the risk of creating more problems than it solves absolutely and fair play eschewing should we say the uh, the, the vc money and bootstrapping and becoming profitable it, it, it now does actually seem to be a bit more of a trend to to do what you've done and what you decided to do you know, in, in 2012. And even VCs are, 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 I'm seeing a lot of content from VCs that are saying like, you know, you shouldn't raise VC money you know, if you don't have to. So I, I think there is a mindset change that is happening around SaaS entrepreneurs. Um, obviously, you know, the topic or the, the, the podcast is, is the struggle, right? And so we want to talk about some of the challenges, like everybody faces challenges mm-hmm. in being a CEO, in being an entrepreneur, in scaling a SaaS business. Let's talk about some of your challenges that you've had, you know, since founding ProdPad to, to get to where you are, to, to be running this, you know, profitable SaaS business. Yeah, um, I guess along the way, the I mean, some of the biggest challenges is having to rewrite my own job every six months. As soon as I think I've got a handle on it, it changes because the needs of the business have changed. Um, and making sure that we're hiring the right people at the right time, uh, this, you know, huge implications and huge decisions to be made around which uh, people to hire first and where to go. Our first hire, for example, um, was a customer success type role uh, because we thought that that was going to be something that was really important to our customers. Uh, And that panned out well for us, but I can also see a a different version of our timeline had we hired sales first, for example. Um, Who knows what kind of route it would have taken. Um, but, um, you know, it's, it's really difficult making sure that you're hiring the right people at the right time and knowing that it's the right decision. Um, that said, you know, absolutely love the team that we have today and wouldn't change it. But, you know, there's always that trying to understand what the best decisions are for the company and not just around hiring, but big decisions like should we take money? 
um, at any point in time, we could have fundamentally changed the course of the company. Uh, we don't know whether it was for better or for worse. And I think one of the biggest struggles is balancing the big picture questions like that with the minutiae of just trying to run a business. You know, at any point in time, there's little fires everywhere uh, and you've got to be uh, able to handle that whiplash of dealing with that super high level stuff down to the fine grain detailed stuff all before your first coffee. Absolutely. I think a lot of people can relate to, to all of those points. I mean, are you okay if we dive deeper into in, into some of them? Yeah, sure. So let's start with, you started with rewriting the job role as a CEO every six months. Let's talk about that. Like, why, why do you feel the need to do that? Um, how do you go about it? I wish I could say there's a process. I think more often than not, it's it's more reactive than anything, realizing that you know circumstances have changed. Um, like, for example, in the first couple of years, uh, I was front-end developer and uh, uh, I was customer support, I was sales, I was blogger, I was social media, uh, I was everything, uh, as, as well as finance and trying to figure out the operational side of things. Um, there was tons of different pieces. But as we've hired in people, I've uh, been able to hand over key pieces of the role to make sure that those areas are handled better than what I was able to do before. Um, And there's key changes um, at at each step. I mean, you know, nowadays we have uh, much more of a process around how we go about hiring people. We have a people operations manager. We have, uh, you know, different people, different heads within the team uh, who handle different areas of the business. And I've had to learn to delegate more than anything uh, and trust the people around me, trust them to do a good job. I guess some of the other, the other points that you mentioned were just around like deciding whilst you are bootstrapping, whether at some point, you know, do you actually raise venture capital? You know, do you go down that other path and try and become a, a hundred million ARR company or bust, right? Like how close have you, have you come to actually deciding like we're not going to bootstrap anymore, we're going to become a VC back company? So we've had various moments, um, kind of sliding doors moments. Like in 2015, we got as far as having uh, term papers um, ready to go. And we realized that it wasn't going to be the right deal for us. It wasn't the right set of investors for us. And while, you know, it's nice to have money at a good valuation, it was basically like saying we were betting the entire business, which at that point in time was, you know, running lean and bootstrapped and lightly profitable, uh, betting the whole thing on red and hoping that it comes out in the wash. Uh, we realized that the money that was being put in front of us was, yeah, it was nice to have, you know, quarter million pounds, um, you know, possibly about to come into your bank account when you had none in there. Um, but we also realized that if we had taken that money, hiring more salespeople wouldn't have solved problems. Hiring more developers and having more features wouldn't have necessarily solved problems either. Uh, what we had to do was get really smart about our numbers. We realized that if we just tweaked, uh, in that case, it was um, our conversion rate. If we just tweaked our conversion rate by a little bit, it would actually set us off on a trajectory that beat what we were looking to do had we just hired sales or thrown money at marketing or whatever else. Uh, so we actually stepped back from the money and used that as a way to refocus our efforts on just doing things that we could within the means we had, which didn't require hiring 20 people. It just required us to really think about it and focus. Uh, and we were able to beat those predictions and we never actually took in the cash. So that was like one sliding doors moment. Um, I still have conversations with VCs on a regular basis. Um, I love chatting to investors because I can hear about uh, what kind of things, what kind of trends are happening in the market. Um, you know, where, where are they seeing things going? 
but also understand how they uh, evaluate companies like ourselves. And we are an odd one being completely bootstrapped and having sort of foregone the seed stage, but gotten passed to that stage that, um, you know, we're now looking like it could be interesting to VCs. What I usually say is that we're not looking for funding today, but at the time that we can reliably and predictably turn cash into additional revenue, then that's a time to take on funding, um, the time that we actually need to add fuel to the fire. Right now, I know that our sales and marketing efforts are working to a certain degree, but I also know that I wouldn't be able to just multiply it, add 10 more of the same people and get the same results. Uh, so we're working on um, operationalizing that, getting to the point of having predictable revenue. Uh, and at that point in time, it makes a lot more sense. It's just capital coming in that allows us to turn that money into more down the line. Uh, but until that point, I do see it as a risky bet. It's taking your entire company and betting it all on you know, either red or black and hoping that it comes out. No, absolutely. And I guess you, like you spoke there around the value of or one reason that somebody would raise VC to enable them you know, for the growth trajectory, perhaps to get there faster, taking that bet. But obviously, as you said, it is a bet and more often than not actually doesn't necessarily pan out. But again, like we're being bootstrapped not having that uh, additional capital in the bank account, perhaps, you know, getting down to zero in the bank, if that, you know, ever ever was the case. I'm sure it has been for many, you know, entrepreneurs and founders. Like, how do you, how did you get through the kind of the survival period till you, you actually get that, that cushion of finances in the bank? Um, how did you do that? And how did it affect you as a, as a CEO? So I've got a story there. 2015 was almost certainly our toughest year for the business. Um, the, the previous few years, we'd been keeping so lean that we didn't actually have any staff. Um, we didn't have anybody really working with us besides a, um, ourselves and a couple outsourced developers that we were able to uh, you know, work in very flexible ways. Um, but until that point, we still had our first, you know, we, we were up to maybe our first couple hundred customers or so. Uh, and at that point in time, it got us to the point of having nothing in the bank to getting to that, um, you know, around that 10,000 MRR point, 10,000 to 15,000 MRR point, which is actually a really dangerous period for companies because at that point in time, you now have enough to start making decisions with that money. Before that point, you've got no cash. So the only thing you can do is whatever you can do in your spare time. Um, and, uh, you know, while it does slow things down, it does focus your mind on that. As soon as we had cash in the bank, we started doing things. We started figuring out how to hire people and how to spend money on events and uh, advertising and um, how to, uh, you know, try out different sales techniques and to try all these different things. Uh, and so we did that. We tried a whole bunch of different avenues. And really what we were doing was laughing about. We were trying a bunch of stuff, but getting nothing out of it because we weren't focused. We didn't really have a goal to these experiments. Uh, and so we very quickly went from having a very, very low cost base to actually a, an increasing cost base um, that um, flatlined our profitability. And um, because we were spending so much time faffing about, we weren't focusing on adding value to the customers. And so development slowed down. 
uh, and that added to the the issue. And so 2015 was a really, really difficult year because we saw everything sort of flatline. Um, I, I'd, I'd read about it a couple of years before as well. It's called the uh, the Plateau of Doom. Uh, and it happens to so many companies out there. And I assumed it wouldn't happen to me, uh, which was remiss of me. Um, what I should have done was keep an eye on the numbers and been able to react to it. And once we hit that Plateau of Doom, it became much harder to do anything, right? It's really difficult to make any sort of decisions about taking in funding or growing or doing anything in the business. And that was the period at which we uh, doubled down and just focused on um, a couple key things in order to fix these key problems, uh, cash and bank and conversion rate. Um, so we focused very heavily on getting our conversion rate up. And so those changes started coming through and uh, paying off in early 2016. And one of the things I wish I had done two years prior or from the beginning that I didn't think was going to be useful but turned out to be really pivotal for us was actually changing our pricing and creating an annual package. Uh, we'd spend all this time iterating on the product, trying to make that really good, but we hadn't really focused on changing the pricing and the packaging and making that more interesting. As soon as we did that, that unleashed cash into the business. It was this injection of cash for people who actually were willing to pay for an annual package uh, and that really, really helped us through. And so doing so actually ended up giving us more cash on a month-by-month -month basis than we would have had uh, had we taken on funding. And we're trying to um, spread that out over the, the 18 or 24 months that we're hoping to use it over. Smart move. Was there any correlation between that and uh, I'm pretty sure when you at a, a pricing workshop run by Patrick Campbell that I put on like a few years ago? Was, was there yeah. any I learned some stuff from uh, from Patrick Campbell on that. Um, and, you know, one of them was just that key point of being willing to ask people the questions about pricing and not being afraid of changing your pricing. Uh, and the way we get away with that, because customers hate when you change the prices, uh, we have a rule where we grandfather in old existing customers. And that way it gives us freedom to test and check with new customers coming in going, well, you know what, if you'd signed up a year ago, you get to keep that great price. But nowadays we've added in a lot of value. Look at all the new functionality we've built in here. Look how much better the app works for you now. Here's the new price of the app and uh, check, test and check as to whether people still sign up. And so far, you know what, we've been constantly improving the app over the years and we constantly change the pricing and the packaging. Uh, and that's been one of the key drivers with uh, bringing up our um, average revenue per account. Everybody makes mistakes, right, when they're in work or, you know, whether they're running a, a, a company. And uh, you mentioned there about sort of grandfathering in, and it just made me sort of think that uh, about a mistake, uh, an anecdote that I've heard often about Zendesk, when they, one of the biggest mistakes that they made was, you know, changing their pricing and not grandfathering in their existing customers and, and then shit hit the fan and all, all the existing customers, you know, were on the phone and, um, yeah. you, you know, all over social media, right? Has there been anything perhaps maybe not to that scale, but like what, what are like some of the mistakes that you've made over the last like seven years that you've dealt with, you've learned from that perhaps others can learn from as well? Really good question. Uh, I'll have to think about that because we haven't done anything on a monumental scale that's it, it, resulted in social media blowing up at us or anything like yeah. that. I actually read about that story in, um, is it Startup Land, that book about... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I probably read, read that. I'm, I'm sure I've, I've seen, like, Mikhail speak about it, uh, like, also as, uh, like, the kind of the one big thing that has happened to them. Had there been some mistakes around, like, personnel or... or yeah. Uh, like, Hindsight is a really beautiful thing because it gives you this ability to look back on things and say, oh, well, if I knew everything now, then I wouldn't you know, I, I, I would 
do it all differently. Um, fortunately, there's actually not tons that I would do differently, and I'm really lucky to have the team that I have. Um, I know that had I known everything I know today, back in 2012, I could have taken on money and absolutely owned it and gotten to this point way faster, but possibly at the risk of not having the same team or the same journey or learning those lessons that would help me along the way going forwards. Um, I certainly wouldn't want to just be um, successful purely by luck and not having screwed up along the way. Um, in hindsight, I wish that I had invested more in sales and marketing earlier on. Uh, we only really started doing that maybe 18 months ago. Uh, and I think we've uh, we underestimated uh, the quality of our product and what we could actually do with it if we spread the word about it. We took it on as a very product management centric way of build it and they will come. And they did. I mean, we built something. We have had a lot of customers turn up um, just by simply blogging about stuff and, and you know, really simple marketing or content strategy um, techniques. Um, but had we pushed on that gas a little bit earlier, we could probably have totally done great and been further ahead today because of that. Um, but it's always that risk because you don't want to fill a leaky funnel or anything like that. Um, so that was one of the things is that I wish we'd invested more in marketing earlier, um, but we're now making up for that and uh, growing our marketing team, growing our sales team and uh, seeing the results that come out of that. One thing around sort of investing in marketing, you mentioned in the, in the beginning that uh, you're a, also a co-founder of Mind the Product Conference, which is a, a great conference that we at SASDOC look up to and hear great things about. You know, also uh, you do the, the product tank meetups all across the world, right? Did this co-founding of, of this big conference, uh, which it is now, and global conference, which it is now, uh, and these meetups, you know, was this a marketing initiative to help ProdPad or is it totally sort of separate? And the last part of the question, how beneficial has your involvement in Mind the Product and Product Tank been towards ProdPad? Uh, so one of the important things with Mind the Product is that it's a completely separate company from ProdPad. Anytime ProdPad gets involved with Mind the Product, it, play, it pays full whack sponsorship uh, to get involved with it. Um, we don't get any sort of um, hand-me-outs or anything like that. Uh, two completely separate companies. And in hindsight, that's one of the, um, I guess you could say, mistakes I made that I don't regret uh, was founding the two companies and trying to grow both of them at the same time. Uh, one of the other reasons why 2015 was a really tough year was because myself and my co-founder Simon were both also part-time working on Mind the Product, which was a, a growing beast of itself. It was uh, the, the, the meetups were growing from city to city to city. The, the conference was moving from London to expanding to San Francisco, a lot of things going on there. And it meant that we weren't able to focus really on either of them. And so one of the best things I did was actually step back from mind the product in any sort of operational sense in 2015 um, and hand over the reins to the other two founders to go run with that. Um, but no, it hasn't actually been a, um, a, a marketing uh, drive or benefit in, in a huge way. Because uh, what we find is that the people who find ProdPad are often people who are quite literally looking at the moment for, you know, Googling for things like, how do I do a product roadmap? How do I write specs? How do I connect my ideas to Jira? All these things that we solve. And these are all things that came through organic marketing almost entirely. 
the benefit of having the the conference and that mind the product background, that community, is that I've been surrounded by good product managers. I have a huge network of product managers who I can turn to and ask questions and understand how they do product management. So it has helped me understand the market, which has played into my ability to you know, drive ProdPad towards the right stuff, but it hasn't come through in terms of, you know, this is our marketing platform. Um, we try to get involved in events all over the place um, and we try to find um, other ways of reaching product people, which is, you know, most of them aren't actually at events. Most of them are just doing their day job and trying to find solutions for the day-to-day uh, problems. I mean, you mentioned that you pay full whack for sponsorship. I do hope that James gives you a discount. <laughs> no, actually, because you know what? That would be entirely unfair for all the other people who get involved. You know, keep in mind that Broadpad is just one of the companies who supports Mind the Product, but there are dozens of other amazing companies, uh, vendors and recruitment companies and all sorts of other companies who get involved with Mind the Product. And that would be entirely unfair uh, to to do that. So, um, no, we don't get a concession. A lot of people are really surprised by that, though. Including myself, but I think I think fair play to um, <laughs> I read something yesterday, I think it was um, Sam Parr, who's a founder of The Hustle. They do quite a good like newsletter, um, and I think they also run a, run a conference. And he sort of tweeted out about the fact that just passing five years of, of running The Hustle uh, and sort of commenting that, you know, he'd read that, you know, when you get to kind of five years, often, you know, founders get a little bit tired and contemplate at that point, you know, whether to kind of continue and push on for the next five years. Can you relate to that? Has there ever been a time where you've got tired and, you know, thought about, like, do I want to continue to do this? Do I, you know, should I give up? Should I sell my shares? Um, You know, have you had those uh, thoughts and feelings? Never to the point of wanting to uh, sell my shares or get out of the game. having a bit of perspective often helps. Um, you know, when things get tough, uh, you think about it, like, what are my options? Like write up my CV and start applying for jobs. I, I don't want to go do that sort of thing. I actually really love the position that I'm in and I love the team that I surround myself with. Uh, when things get tough, uh, it's often, you know, do you ever have that feeling that you just want to clone yourself to get more done? And if you, you know, if you didn't clone yourself, then how, how on earth are you ever going to achieve everything? Uh, that's always my clue to take a break and learn to either automate something, ditch something, or hire someone uh, and, you know, hand something off uh, off my plate in order to keep my sanity. So I do keep a really, really close check on that to make sure that I'm not hitting points where I'm feeling so frustrated and can't do anything about it. Um, any frustration that comes out of this role is no different than the type of frustration you'd have if you had a you know, regular day job and you had a boss and office politics, except this time you wouldn't have control over it. You wouldn't be able to change those things. So I'm very lucky to be in a position where I can actually make decisions to change stuff. And sometimes that does mean putting something down and saying, you know what, no, I'm not going to go talk at this conference or I'm not going to go try to uh, raise funding and hire 20 people and do all this other stuff that, you know, doesn't seem like it's a great idea for the business or perhaps even for me, you know, mentally. Um, <laughs> so I try to figure out what I can do to take care of myself and um, take care of the, the business and just try to balance those things. Um, but no, I never have that uh, that feeling of, you know, screw it, let's walk away. Um, it's sort of like a, oh, this is tough. Why is this tough? What can actually be done about this next? How do you keep your your mental and physical well-being? You know what? I just try to do what feels right. Um, I don't have any sort of um, exercise regiment or I'm not certainly not one of those founders who wakes up at four in the morning or even 
seven in the morning. Um, <laughs> you, you don't um, take uh, you don't take saun- uh, saunas and ice baths like Jack. Yeah. Dawson. No, hell no. That's just not my style. Um, I I spend time at the beach. I live right on the beach, so I go out there. Um, really great to just get fresh air and, uh, you know, sort of a pseudo meditation. Uh, I've been trying meditation because I've heard that's good for me. Um, I've got that Headspace app and I listen to that every once in a while. Um, but I don't really have anything that I stick to that's, um, that's you know, uh, blog worthy. It's just trying to listen to myself, listen to my body, um, and listen to my team around me and make sure that they're in good good state as well. Is there? I mean, this is always a very sort of like big question. That you, you know, any uh, specific like advice that you would give to to other founders and CEOs out there? I think it's really key to surround yourself with good people. Like, find your people, find your networks, find ways of being involved with that sort of group. Whether that's um, you know, other SaaS founders, or in my case, it's been product people, uh, and be really open to advice. Just ask lots of questions. Uh, be really open about the plans that you're going to, th- that you're thinking. Um, uh, you know, no one's going to go ahead and steal your ideas and steal your plans, but by sharing them, you're going to learn a lot because you're going to have people give you advice as to, oh, well, I tried that and here's some pitfalls, or I tried that and here's what you could do to amplify it or go faster. Um, so I'm actually really open about the um, the types of things that I'm thinking of doing and uh, with both people on my team and people externally. Uh, I've got a great list of people that I consider as either official advisors or unofficial mentors or whoever else that I can turn to for, for advice when needed. You, you spoke at the first SAS doc just over three years ago now, right? Yep. And, uh, so what will we hear from you? I know we, we're like six months away or, or something like that, but <laughs> what will we hear from you this year, uh, which I guess is kind of like different from... Uh, from your talk three years ago. Yeah, my talk a few years ago was about delighting your customers, things you can do with your product to bring delight. Um, This time, I'm actually going to be talking about driving your churn rate down to that magical uh, negative churn value. Uh, And uh, what that basically means is making sure that you've got fewer people leaving with their money um, then you have people coming in with their money or upgrading. Uh, and that's actually a really key piece is getting that upgrade or that expansion MRR coming through uh, in driving that churn rate to that negative value. So I'll be Excellent. sharing my, my tips and tricks on that. Excellent. Well, I look forward to that. And, um, you, you know, perhaps that's the next time I'll see you in Dublin in October. That's 14th to the 16th of Laptop 19. You've come to the end of the show, Jan. I really appreciate uh, you taking your time today to to share those lessons uh, that you've learned in growing Propad to become a, a bootstraps, you know, profitable uh, company, and you know some of the challenges uh, and struggles that you've had uh, on, on the way. So thanks very much, Jan Abasto, co-founder of Propad. Wonderful. Thanks, Alex, for having me. Really good chatting with you today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Struggle with Jana Basto. Uh, you can find the original episode I recorded with Jana in the show notes. And as a reminder, you can hear more powerful founder stories at SAS.East Coast, taking place June the 4th and the 5th in New York. And use code 241 to get our 2 for 1 ticket deal. Go to events.sasdoc.com forward slash East Coast 19. Use code 2FOR1241. Thanks for listening and see you next time.